You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the final days of April 1863... General Nathaniel Banks's Union Army began arriving back in Alexandria, Louisiana, a small city of about 5,000 residents that only a month earlier had served as the Union Forces' rendezvous point for the campaign against the Louisiana capital of Shreveport. After abandoning the effort to capture Shreveport, Banks's Yankee soldiers and the Union Freshwater Flotilla were compelled to make a difficult fighting retreat back to Alexandria. Once they got to Alexandria, they expected to be out of harm's way, able to complete the rest of the evacuation unimpeded. But the withdrawal didn't work out as smoothly as planned. The water level on the Red River was too low for many of Admiral Porter's boats to pass, so they were stuck in Alexandria for the time being. And if the Union Army continued to retreat by land, abandoning the boats, the flotilla would be an easy target for destruction by rebel artillery, so Banks's army was stuck in Alexandria, too. Only an impressive feat of improvised dam construction by a talented Wisconsin engineer named Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Bailey would eventually allow the Union Navy to escape, and the army with it. But Bailey's dam took a couple weeks to design and build. By the time the frustrated Federals were finally able to leave Alexandria on May 13th, their stay was firmly etched into the city's memory. The Union Army began vacating Alexandria first thing in the morning on the 13th, bringing an end to their two-and-a-half-week visit. The 13th Army Corps, the front of the Union Column, was already several miles outside of Alexandria, no longer in sight of the city, when they noticed a towering pillar of smoke ascending from the direction of the town behind them. The smoke was visual evidence of the disaster presently befalling Alexandria, the small city was going up in smoke, and the soldiers who had marched out only a couple hours earlier were now witnessing that smoke. Now, the initial destruction was part of the evacuation plan, as Union soldiers demolished Lieutenant Colonel Bailey's dam. It had already served its purpose by allowing Admiral Porter's flotilla to escape. Leaving it in place now would only help the rebels. But the fire that followed was in direct conflict with General Nathaniel Banks' orders. In fact, Banks expressly said not to burn the city. Even so, a St. Louis newspaperman on the scene, as reported by James G. Hollinsworth in an article on the burning of Alexandria in 64 Parishes magazine, uh, which is published by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, and which we're relying on for the first-person accounts in this section, the St. Louis newspaper correspondent with the Union Army in Alexandria wrote, quote, When all the gunboats were over the falls, and the order to evacuate was promulgated, and the army nearly on the march, some of our soldiers set fire to the city in nearly every part, almost simultaneously. The flames spread rapidly, increased by a heavy wind. Most of the houses were of wooden structure and were soon devoured by the flames, end quote. A New York infantryman who unsuccessfully tried to help Alexandria residents fight the fire wrote in his journal, quote, About daylight this morning, cries of fire and the ringing of the alarm bells were heard on every side. I think a hundred fires must have been started at one time. There was no lack of help. Uh, here he means that Union soldiers and the residents of Alexandria were attempting to stop the fire. But all were helpless to do more than that. 
Only the things most needful, such as beds and eatables, were saved. One lady begged so for her piano that was got out on the porch and there left to burn. Cows ran bellowing through the streets. Chickens flew out from yards and fell in the streets with their feathers scorching on them. Crowds of people, men, women, children, and soldiers were running with all they could carry when the heat would become unbearable, and dropping all, they would flee for their lives, leaving everything but their bodies to burn. Over the levee, the sights and sounds were harrowing. Thousands of people, mostly women, children, and old men, were wringing their hands as they stood by the little piles of what was left of all their worldly possessions. Thieves were everywhere, and some of them were soldiers. I saw one knocked down and left in the street who had his arms full of stolen articles. The provost guards were everywhere, and, I am told, shot down everyone caught spreading the fire or stealing. Nearly all buildings were of wood. Great patches of burning roofs would sail away to drop and start a new fire. By noon, the thickly settled portion of Alexandria was a smoking ruin. End quote. Over 22 city blocks around 90% of the town, were consumed by the fire. Shops, houses, churches, hotels, the parish courthouse, with all the parish's public records, were all burned until only smoldering piles of ashes remained. The inferno was short and intense. All the damage took only a couple hours. Nearly the entire town and most of its residents' possessions were destroyed. Out of all the large buildings in the downtown area, a solitary Catholic church alone survived. Most of the men in the 13th Corps and the other Union soldiers already outside Alexandria before the fire began, they believed, or maybe they wanted to believe, that loyalist Louisianans set the fire to prevent the town from returning to rebel hands. Professor Hollinsworth, the author of the article we mentioned earlier, he sees this as unlikely as witnesses on both sides agreed that the fires began while Union troops still occupied the town. And numerous residents of Alexandria reported witnessing small squads of troops methodically lighting buildings on fire throughout the town. Dr. J.P. Davidson, an Alexandria resident, testified, quote, At the premises of Francine, a free woman of color, men entered the yard with a tin bucket and mop, and sprinkled the fencing and outbuildings with a mixture of turpentine and camphene, saying that they were preparing the place for hell. At several points where the progress of the fire was arrested by the interposition of a brick edifice, similar means were resorted to, to continue the conflagration. End quote. The most likely arsonists were the final Union soldiers to leave Alexandria, soldiers from among the score of regiments under General A.J. Smith, on loan from General Sherman. Before joining the Red River campaign, they had campaigned with Sherman against Meridian, Mississippi. Sherman's report of that campaign concluded, quote, We lived off the country and made a swath of desolation 50 miles broad across the state of Mississippi, which the present generation will not forget, end quote. So the idea of raising Alexandria would not have seemed outlandish to A.J. Smith's men. They had experience with that sort of thing. When the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War conducted its investigation into the Red River Campaign, the burning of Alexandria was not on the itinerary. The one time it came up was when General Nathaniel Banks brought it up to note that he had left explicit written orders that the town was not to be burned. And Banks's testimony was undoubtedly true. He even directed his cavalry to guard against the town's destruction until the evacuation was complete. The burning of Alexandria was in direct violation of General Nathaniel Banks's orders. But by the time of the Army's return to Alexandria, after the failure to take Shreveport, General Nathaniel Banks had already lost credibility with the men. He was still in command de jure, but was no longer in charge de facto. Regular soldiers were cracking jokes about Banks's weakness as a general, his lack of intestinal fortitude. So the men simply disregarded his orders. They were Union soldiers, after all, and General Sherman was their commander. And Nathaniel Banks? Well, they thought he was just a politician, play-acting army.
Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part two of our two-part series on the Red River Campaign, the unsuccessful Union operation into the heart of Louisiana in 1864. Last time out, we looked at the Civil War in Louisiana and the dichotomy of veteran officers versus political generals. And we introduced the four commanders who are central to this story, Admiral David Dixon Porter and General Nathaniel Banks on the Union side, and Generals Richard Taylor and Kirby Smith for the Confederates. This episode will go into greater detail about the campaign itself. Thank you all for tuning in. If you have questions or comments, feel free to email the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, spelling gray with an E. And now I hope you enjoy part two of the Red River Campaign. When we left off in Part 1, the Union Army, under General Nathaniel Banks, and Navy, under Admiral David Dixon Porter, had just rendezvoused at the small city of Alexandria, Louisiana. Alexandria had been in Confederate hands, but upon receiving reports of the considerable Union strength converging on Alexandria, Rebel General Richard Taylor opted to abandon the city and pull back further upriver in hopes of consolidating a larger Confederate force to oppose General Banks at a more strategically advantageous location. After the withdrawal, the city of Alexandria formally surrendered on May 9, 1864, to the first of Union Admiral David Dixon Porter's gunboats that threatened the city. Admiral Porter had with him an imposing freshwater flotilla. All told, there were about 90 Union vessels, including support boats, with more than 200 naval guns. The big hitters were 10 ironclads with heavy armor, about a dozen tin-clad gunboats, which were quicker and more lightly armored than the ironclads, three river monitors that featured rotating turrets, and a few rams. The 10,000-soldier protective force under General A.J. Smith got a ride to Alexandria with the Navy, And now, Porter and his flotilla, and A.J. Smith with his 10,000 veteran Midwesterners, were left waiting around near Alexandria for General Banks to show up. The federal plan had called for only a brief stop-off in Alexandria, just long enough for the Army, arriving by land from in and around New Orleans, and the Navy, coming by water from the Mississippi River, to link up and organize. But General Nathaniel Banks' army, around 20,000 men he called the Army of the Gulf, arrived in Alexandria in disorganized fashion five days after the appointed date, and Banks himself didn't show up until a few days after that. The delay resulted from both a lack of urgency and from what the other Union commanders viewed as Banks' prioritizing the acquisition of cotton over the military mission of capturing Shreveport. General Banks, the former Speaker of the House and Governor of Massachusetts and current Major General, brought with him on campaign cotton purchasing agents working for the wealthy New England mill owners who supported Banks' political career. The idea that the campaign in Louisiana was really a pretext to support the business interests of politically connected New England textile mill owners was particularly galling to the 10,000 Midwestern veterans under Union General A.J. Smith. The Midwesterners had been dispatched from Vicksburg by General Sherman as a protective force for the Navy, separate from General Banks' Army of the Gulf. They arrived in Alexandria with Porter's flotilla, and like Admiral Porter and their commanding officer, General A.J. Smith, they doubted General Banks' competency as a commander. The friction that arose in Alexandria wasn't the only internal conflict on the Union side. Admiral Porter and General Banks didn't get along personally, or at least they didn't trust one another. In Porter's case, this was because he didn't think Nathaniel Banks had any business occupying the high command that he held. Porter was well aware that Banks was a well-connected politician who had not secured his rank through military training or experience. Porter doubted that he'd be able to count on Banks when the fighting started. The delay that had resulted from the opportunistic cotton purchasing expedition only solidified Porter's pre-existing opinions. After the war, in his book Naval History of the Civil War, Admiral Porter gave a frank assessment of General Banks. In this quote, Porter seems like he doesn't want to come across as bad-mouthing Banks too much because of a grudge, 
So he tries to say some sort of nice things, but you can tell that Porter is not a fan of Nathaniel Banks. Quoting Admiral David Dixon Porter, quote, With all General Banks' faults, what a way to start, right? We're already assuming that Banks has multiple faults. Okay, with uh, all of General Banks' faults, he had some striking good qualities. He was a gentleman in his manners. He looked well in his uniform and kept himself always scrupulously neat, though rather theatrical in his style of gloves and boots. With a better surrounding, he could have had more success as a general. Now, you'll notice that the, um, the compliments that Porter gives Banks relate to things that aren't really relevant to Banks' ability as a commander or yeah, even as an administrator. Basically, you know, he's polite and he dresses well. Yeah, it's like Porter's uh, trying to call Banks a dandy uh, through the traits that he, he chooses to compliment. Uh, okay, returning to Porter's uh, assessment of Banks. He had not much force of character and he lacked nerve in time of danger. Banks rather preferred to be considered a soldier rather than a statesman. He never had sufficient military force to properly occupy the country under his immediate command, much less to make expeditions into hostile regions. End quote. Now, for his part, Banks knew that Admiral Porter had a, a tight uh, relationship with General Grant, um, who was now calling the shots for the entire army, and Banks was, was severely ambitious, so there's a good chance he was worried that Porter's uh, high profile and his relationship with Grant would result in Porter, and not Banks, getting the credit for the sure-to-succeed campaign they were undertaking. Unfortunately, I don't have a quote about Admiral Porter from General Banks, so uh, to keep things fair, we will allow Banks a surrogate and accept an assessment of Admiral Porter from someone else who didn't really like him, uh, that individual uh, being Sylvanus Cadwallader, a reporter for the Chicago Times and New York Herald, who spent three years as a correspondent traveling with General Grant. This is Sylvanus Codwallader's evaluation of Admiral Porter. Quote, I pronounce him by all odds the greatest humbug of the war. He never accomplished anything if unaided. The Confederates laughed at him. Add to this that Porter was vain, arrogant, and egotistical. All three, vain, arrogant, and egotistical. Okay, Porter was vain, arrogant, and egotistical. To an extent that can neither be described nor exaggerated, and you have his caliber completely. He possessed many polite accomplishments, but very few qualities of a great naval commander. End quote. Now, I should say here that I read a bunch of assessments of Admiral Porter while preparing this episode. Uh, there were more than one that described Porter as arrogant or as overly ambitious, but Cadwallader, uh, who was a journalist and, and not a professional military man, he is among a very small minority who suggested that Porter was, was not actually good at his job. Not one thing General Banks and Admiral Porter could agree on was that written orders they received from General Grant in Alexandria had brought bad news for the campaign. Sherman was about to move against Atlanta, and taking Atlanta was a higher priority than taking Shreveport, and General Grant wanted every available resource for the Atlanta campaign. That included the 10,000 veteran soldiers under A.J. Smith that Sherman had loaned to the campaign. The small army was directed to return to Sherman on or before April 15th, earlier than originally expected. Grant's orders made clear that A.J. Smith's men must return to General Sherman, even if that meant that Banks would have to abandon the operation against Shreveport, what Grant called, quote, the main object of your expedition, end quote. Banks's delay had become even more costly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When they set out from Alexandria, the Union Army marched northwest along the course of the Red River, with the Navy's gunboats traveling upriver on their right flank. Porter's freshwater fleet had its first major difficulties with the waterways heading out from Alexandria. 
The Red River wasn't particularly deep anyway, and less than normal rainfall left the water level lower than it would normally be in the spring. The larger, heavier gunboats struggled with rapids north of Alexandria, eventually making it through, but only after some delay. Without adequate maps, Banks was unsure about the best route for the Army to approach Shreveport. He learned from a riverboat pilot who was helping the Yankees, and who was familiar with the area, that a reliable road ran west from Grand Ecor, uh, which set on the Red River, to Pleasant Hill, which did not. From Pleasant Hill, the Yankee army would have a clear path north toward Shreveport. This route would let the army approach Shreveport through a relatively unprotected area to the city's southwest. The downside was that the road through Pleasant Hill required greater geographic separation between General Banks' army and Admiral Dixon's gunboats, so the two arms of the combined arms campaign would be separated, each losing the protection of the other. Now, what Banks didn't know, and what he would learn only after it was too late, was that the helpful river pilot who suggested the Pleasant Hill route was self-interested. There was another, better road that ran parallel to the river. It would have allowed the army to reach Shreveport without separating from the Navy. Uh, The problem with the river road route, in the uh, eyes of the, the helpful river pilot, was that it ran through a few hundred acres of farmland, which happened to belong to that same river pilot. And he wanted General Banks' army to take the road through Pleasant Hill so that the army and the cotton speculators who traveled with it wouldn't pilfer his own cotton crop. Now, we can only speculate as to whether the the river pilot would have given the same uh, uh, bad advice had Banks' partners not made clear their intention to pilfer or purchase all the Louisiana cotton that they could get their hands on. So, leaving from Grand Ecor, which was roughly halfway between Alexandria and Shreveport, um, a little over 50 miles uh, as the crow flies, Banks chose to, uh, in his thinking, temporarily split the force for the next leg of the journey. Porter's gunboats would obviously continue moving up the Red River, and Banks' army would march west by land, then hang a right at Pleasant Hill and start north for Shreveport. About three-fourths of General A.J. Smith's men, um, that's the 10,000 who Sherman uh, tasked with protecting the flotilla, uh, about three-fourths of them, including A.J. Smith himself, accompanied Banks. The remainder stayed with Porter, and the plan was for the combined force to unite again at Springfield Landing to the south of Shreveport. They separated, with Banks beginning the westward march toward Pleasant Hill on April 6th, Now, here we need to emphasize the unwieldy size of the army um, that General Banks was leading down the narrow country roads of Louisiana Bayou Country. The American Battlefield Trust, uh, which is a historical preservation group that that does a lot to preserve and and restore uh, Civil War battlefields, um, they tell us of Banks' federal army, quote, His column stretched more than 20 miles. At the lead was his cavalry division of about 4,000 troopers led by Brigadier General Albert L. Lee. Half of Lee's men were recently mounted infantry and did not know how to care for their horses, much less how to ride with confidence. Lee called them his amateur equestrians. Following this were the division's 300 supply wagons, artillery units, an infantry division, 700 additional wagons, and the bulk of the 13th and 19th Corps. Following this long procession were A.J. Smith's veterans, relegated to eat the dust of the whole column, end quote. So this is not a lean expeditionary force traveling light through the countryside. They have like a thousand wagons. And because the route that Banks uh, had selected on the advice of the friendly river pilot required them to use a single narrow road, the two ends of the lengthy column could not communicate with one another without significant delay. That means it would take a long time for the entire army to prepare itself for battle. Should such a thing come up, which Banks was pretty sure it would not. And it also meant that the 4,000 riders leading the way had 300 wagons between them and the nearest infantry, a single division. And then there were 700 more wagons before you got back to the bulk of the army. 
And then A.J. Smith's battle-hardened Army of the Tennessee veterans were pulling up the rear. Now, playing Monday morning quarterback, this arrangement seems imprudent, or even reckless, like Nathaniel Banks was asking for a disaster. The thing is, though, Banks was nearly certain that he would see no rebel resistance until he actually arrived in the outskirts of Shreveport, and his plan was built for that assumption. They were still traveling to the battle. They wouldn't get there for several more days, or so he thought. But that's not what rebel commander Richard Taylor had in mind. And, you know, it's kind of a cliche at this point, but the enemy gets a vote. The first sign that the Union operation might encounter meaningful Confederate resistance came the evening of the second day's march. The front end of the extended column reached to the junction at Pleasant Hill, made it about three miles north, and ran into some rebel cavalry. The next morning, April 8th, the Union cavalry at the front resumed the march and in mid-morning again spotted Confederate cavalry. The Union cavalry commander, that's uh, General Albert Lee, moved to confront the rebel horsemen, but they withdrew. Upon reaching the ridge that the rebels previously occupied, a troubling scene came to the eyes of the Union troopers. General Richard Taylor's Confederate army occupied the road ahead, arrayed for battle all across the front of the Union column, and with a sizable contingent, including cavalry, elbowed on the rebel left, in position to move against the Union right. General Taylor had probably a little under 10,000 men with him, composed of 8,800 Confederates under Taylor's command, supplemented by state guardsmen that the Louisiana Governor Henry Allen uh, dispatched to assist Taylor, and that Taylor held in reserve. Now, General Banks uh, had with him a substantially larger Union force compared to Taylor's 10,000 rebels. Banks, in fact, had uh, about double the Confederate numbers. The problem, though, is that the rebels were already ready to roll, locked and loaded and in line for battle, but Banks' Union army is in a narrow column stretching back for miles, with thick woods on either side, and there's hundreds of supply wagons occupying the road between the Union cavaliers at the head of the column and the infantry at its tail. To his great credit, Union General Albert Lee, in charge of the cavalry at the column's front, did the sensible thing. He arranged his men in line to match the opposing rebel front and sent a message back to General Nathaniel Banks with an appeal for immediate infantry support up front. The Union Cavaliers didn't have much time to, to choose strong ground to defend or prepare much in the way of defensive works. They just needed to line up as quickly as possible and hope for the best. Upon receiving the urgent message from his cavalry commander at the front, General Nathaniel Banks dilly-dallied. Uh, as he was prone to do. However, Taylor's rebels held a strong position, which Taylor was hoping that Banks' Federals would attack. So the rebels didn't start the engagement until well into the afternoon. And that was probably a tactical error by Taylor, because once through Albert Lee's cavalry, the rebels would have crossed the T on Banks' entire column. But Taylor most likely didn't realize just how flat-footed that he had caught Banks. Strangely enough, it was General Banks who issued an attack order to Albert Lee, the uh, Union cavalry commander at the front, not the blues guitar player, uh, directing Lee to lead a federal assault on the rebels' covered position. Now, that was precisely, uh, precisely how Richard Taylor hoped the Yankees would react, but uh, Albert Lee recognized that um, Banks' attack order, uh, had it been followed, would have uh, most likely turned catastrophic. Uh, and he convinced Banks that attacking the Confederate strength was unwise. So by the time the rebels began their afternoon offensive, another undermanned Union Corps had made it up front. So the numbers at the point of contact weren't quite as lopsided as they appeared when the two sides first saw each other. But the Confederates still held a numerical advantage where the fighting would actually occur. And just to clarify, General Banks has a lot more Union soldiers than General Taylor has Confederates. But because of how the Union army is stretched out, Taylor can commit more men to the battle. It's worth noting here that um, in initiating the engagement at Mansfield, Confederate General Richard Taylor was close to insubordination. General Kirby Smith, Taylor's boss, 
was against attacking Banks and Admiral Porter's combined arms expedition. Kirby Smith had only recently received word that General Frederick Steele was leading a Union army south from occupied Little Rock, also moving in the direction of Shreveport. It could be that Kirby Smith thought the difficult terrain and defenses already in place along the Red River would be sufficient to block Banks' expedition up the river. But, for whatever reason, Kirby Smith saw opposing Steele's attack as a higher priority than stopping General Banks and Admiral Porter. Kirby Smith was even preparing to transfer men from Richard Taylor's already outnumbered rebel army north to Arkansas. So had Kirby Smith made the call, Banks's assumption probably would have held, and the Union Army would have had a relatively unimpeded march toward Shreveport. But the opinionated Richard Taylor was furious over what he saw as Kirby Smith's awful judgment, and he chose to take the initiative and, if necessary, justify it later. Now, Richard Taylor wasn't just planning to parry uh, Nathaniel Banks's campaign against Shreveport. Taylor's thinking was that the Federals had made a major unforced error by deploying an army out into the bayou where its paths of ingress and egress, supply lines, communications, and access to reinforcements were severely limited. Taylor was intent on making the Federals pay a big price for the blunder by destroying Banks's Federal army outright. And with Nathaniel Banks's ordering his men to march in an overextended column away from the Federal gunboats' protective shadow, thereby neutralizing their two main advantages, numbers and firepower, Taylor believed he had found the ideal moment to strike at Mansfield. The Battle of Mansfield started at a little after four in the afternoon. The battle is also called Sabine Crossroads. Uh, Since part one, I've learned that there are apparently uh, different pronunciations uh, for the first word in the battle's name, depending on where you're from. My understanding is that Louisianans use Sabine and Texans use Sabine. Um, We'll just stick to uh, Mansfield. Okay, the Battle of Mansfield started when the rebel left flank began a methodical assault on the Union right. When the Union right bent but didn't break, Taylor ordered the rebel infantry on a follow-up assault directed at the Union left, which, uh, due to the pre-battle confusion, was woefully undermanned. The Yankee left collapsed under the pressure of the attack, and General Banks arrived on the scene just in time to see the retreating Yankees fall back to a reserve line formed by reinforcements arriving up to the front. That line, too, was pushed back by the advancing rebels. Now, as the Federals pulled back, they were aided by distracted rebels who, uh, instead of pressing forward, stopped to pick through the same Union supply wagons that had hindered Union efforts to reinforce the front. The rebel advance finally came to a halt when the withdrawing Yankees located defensible high ground more than a mile back from where the fighting had begun. Mansfield is viewed as a particularly well-fought battle by General Richard Taylor, and the Confederate victory there did a great deal to boost his reputation as one of the better Southern commanders. In terms of casualties, the Battle of Mansfield was a lopsided rebel victory. The 2,400 total Union casualties more than doubled the Confederate losses and Banks also sustained huge material losses, including nearly all the wagons that were traveling with the cavalry or with the single infantry corps Banks sent to support the cavalry. The Federals also lost a sizable number of artillery pieces, many of which fell into rebel hands because they couldn't be brought along during the retreat because there were too many wagons clogging the relatively narrow road. That night, General Banks pulled his damaged but still battle-ready Union Army back to the town of Pleasant Hill to regroup. General Taylor prepared to resume the battle the next morning, still intent on scoring the knockout blow the South sorely needed. Rebel losses at Mansfield were lighter, about a thousand total casualties, but, as tended to be the case, rebel losses were disproportionately heavy on officers. One of the most damaging was Louisiana general and West Point graduate Alfred Mouton, who rode tall on horseback with his sword drawn when he led the division of Texans and Louisianans under his command in the initial attack on the Union right. General Taylor wrote that, 
The charge made by Mouton across the open was magnificent, end quote. But the chivalrous posture that looked so impressive also made Mouton an obvious target for the Yankee defenders, who cut him down with five separate rounds from the same volley. Mouton had come from a sugar-planting family that still conducted its affairs in French, and he had to hone his command of English at West Point. Mouton's replacement was another native French speaker, 32-year-old General Camille Armand Jules-Marie de Polignac. Polignac, or Prince Camille, as he uh, is often called, was a bona fide French prince who spoke fluent English with the accent of a British aristocrat, uh, which his mother had, in fact, been. After spending time in the French army as a private and then a lieutenant during the Crimean War, Prince Camille came to America before the war and befriended future Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard, on whose staff Prince Camille served at the beginning of the war. Despite winning a reputation for bravery, Prince Camille was repeatedly rejected by Confederate regiments assigned to his command. Basically, American soldiers weren't interested in taking orders from a French prince with a posh British accent. Eventually, General Richard Taylor struck a bargain with a division of Texans who were close to open rebellion against Prince Camille. The deal was that if they gave Prince Camille a chance to command for just one battle, then Taylor would remove the Frenchman if that was still what the Texans wanted. And if they wouldn't give him one battle to prove himself, Taylor would see to it that the Texans' insubordination did not go unpunished. Interestingly enough, after the, uh, the agreed one battle, which was the, the small uh, Battle of Vidalia, the Texans voted to keep Prince Camille in charge. Camille worked his way up to the rank of Major General, and in the early weeks of 1865, the government in Richmond dispatched him as a diplomat to France. The diplomatic assignment effectively ended Prince Camille's military career as a rebel. The Confederacy fell during the trip, and the prince didn't return, though he was knighted by French Emperor Napoleon III for his impressive performance in the Confederates' failed effort at independence. Prince Camille again took up arms in the Franco-Prussian War, in which he quickly earned a promotion to Major General in the French Army, as one of uh, France's few commanders who, who performed um, particularly well in, in that war. Apart from his being a French prince who served as a Confederate general, which is interesting in its own right, uh, the reason for the, uh, this mini-biography of, of uh, Prince Camille is that he is the answer to a uh, really good Civil War trivia question. Because on November 15th, 1913, less than a year before the start of World War I, uh, as he closed in on his 83rd birthday, Prince Camille Armand Jules-Marie de Polignac became the last to die of the 88 men who held the rank of Major General in the Confederate Army. So the last surviving rebel general, uh, ranked major general or higher, had been born a French prince. And just to clarify, uh, major general is two stars, uh, a grade above brigadier general and below lieutenant general and full general. And if you're curious, and I was, the death of the last remaining Confederate general of, of any rank didn't come until a hair over 13 years later in January of 1927 with the death of VMI cadet turned instructor turned ransom taker of Hagerstown, Maryland, General John McCausland, who died at age 90 in his hometown of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which, uh, of course, had been Point Pleasant, Virginia for the first 28 years or so of McCausland's life. Now, if you're not from the area, but Point Pleasant sounds familiar, it's probably because the small town on the Ohio River is, uh, along with General McCausland, also the hometown of The Mothman, featured in the 2002 Richard Gere movie, The Mothman Prophecies. Wikipedia describes it as, quote, a creature said to be a harbinger of imminent disaster that inhabits an abandoned TNT factory, end quote. And uh, that's referring to... Um, to uh, Mothman, not Richard Gere. Now, General Felix Houston Robertson of Texas, who died a year after McCausland in 1928, 
is sometimes credited as the last living Confederate general, but his nomination was rejected by the Confederate Congress, due in large part to his involvement in killing of surrendered black soldiers in the aftermath of the Battle of Saltville, an act uh, which was publicly condemned by Robert E. Lee. And the last living Union general is also the last general to die who served on either side. That distinction belongs to General Aaron Daggett of Maine, who was a solid 100 years old when he died in Massachusetts in 1938. And to bring our trivia digression full circle, April 8, 1864, the date of the Battle of Mansfield uh, that we just discussed, was the same day that Richard Taylor, uh, not to be confused with the actor Richard Gere, who uh, I don't think uh, goes by Dick Gere, uh, it was the same day that General Dick Taylor was promoted to Lieutenant General, making him the first of just three non-West Point graduates among the 19 men to attain the rank of Lieutenant General in the Confederate Army. The other two, if you're wondering, were Nathan Bedford Forrest and Wade Hampton, uh, who were also the final two Confederates promoted to Lieutenant General um, chronologically. Following the Battle of Mansfield on April 8, 1864, General Richard Taylor's Confederates prepared to resume the battle the next morning, only to discover that the Yankees had pulled back. During the battle, the Yankees had lost their freshwater access, and Banks wanted to make sure that, uh, if they got into another scrap, that General A.J. Smith's tough veterans were in the mix this time. Taylor thought he had Banks's Union Army on the ropes, so he opted to pursue the withdrawing Federals south. After marching through the morning and well into the afternoon, the Rebels caught up with General Banks's Army a little under 20 miles southeast of Mansfield, near the town of Pleasant Hill. Taylor went on the offensive late in the afternoon, ordering infantry on the Confederate right to move into position on the Yankee left, and then turn for an attack on the Union left. The attackers missed their intended mark, instead attacking the Yankee center. The attack did manage to push back the Federal lines, but when the Yankee defenders stopped giving ground, uh, upon the arrival of A.J. Smith's veterans, the rebel attackers discovered that they had inadvertently turned the Yankee lines into a big horseshoe. Uh, the formerly advancing Confederates were in the middle of that big horseshoe, and it was an unfortunate place to be, as they were soon taking fire from the front and on both flanks, and were forced to fall back in a hurry. A follow-up assault on the Union right resulted in a near breakthrough, but a well-timed Union counterpunch threw that Confederate wave back as well. The Battle of Pleasant Hill went back and forth for several hours, with, um, according to LSU Alexandria history professor Gary Joyner, more troops engaged than any other Civil War battle west of the Mississippi River. Each side landed some heavy blows, and Northerners and Southerners alike fought with equal ferocity. As darkness neared, the Union Army forced the rebels from the field and claimed a tactical victory. The two sides took roughly equal casualties at the Battle of Pleasant Hill, but the Bluecoats ended up in possession of the contested ground. Nonetheless, when the day's fighting was over, General Banks flinched. Shaken by the carnage, he chose to pull his Union army back further east, toward Grand Ecor, the point where he had separated from Admiral Porter's freshwater fleet four days earlier. General Banks's decision to withdraw effectively conceded a strategic victory to the Confederates. And that decision marks the point where General Banks had completely lost the confidence of the soldiers under his command. He had lost his nerve in victory and, for all practical purposes, gave up on the campaign, condemning the Union Army soldiers and the Union Navy sailors to what would prove to be a difficult retreat through the Louisiana Bayou. Nathaniel Banks' decision followed a council of war, at which only one Union general, Sherman's man, General A.J. Smith, argued in favor of continuing the effort to capture Shreveport. A.J. Smith viewed the decision as just one more bit of evidence of Banks' inadequacy as a military commander, and A.J. Smith actually lobbied for Banks to be removed from command on the spot. A.J. Smith's opinion of Banks was even further cemented when Banks decided that the need for a speedy retreat 
was too great to allow them to collect the Union soldiers killed in action during the day's battle, or to bring along the wounded who still lay on the field. And I want to emphasize this. Banks could have taken a victorious posture after Pleasant Hill. Casualties were more or less uh, the same for both sides, and the larger Union army controlled the field. Instead, he was in such a hurry to retreat that he ordered his men to make a middle-of-the-night withdrawal beginning at 1 a.m. on April 10th without collecting the wounded and burying the dead. Needless to say, leaving wounded men on the field did not ingratiate General Banks with the regular soldiers who he commanded or win any respect from the Confederate adversaries. At daybreak on the 10th, Confederate Brigadier General Hamilton B. led the rebel army in occupation of the formerly contested ground. General B. wrote in his report, quote, The day has been passed in burying the dead of both armies and caring for the Federal wounded, our own wounded having been cared for the night before, End quote. Faced with the surprising Federal retreat, General Richard Taylor's instinct was to pursue the withdrawing Union Army and force another engagement. But after two consecutive days of tough fighting, the men were worn down from casualties and fatigue. The department commander, General Kirby Smith, who arrived on the scene after the battle, informed Taylor that reinforcements were not available for a follow-up attack. Remember, Kirby Smith wants to take men away from Taylor and send them to Arkansas, not give him more. So Taylor was unable to give further chase in the immediate aftermath of Pleasant Hill. Interestingly, uh, Kirby Smith and Richard Taylor held diametrically opposing opinions uh, of the rebel situation following the Battle of Pleasant Hill. General Taylor insisted that had he received the available men that he requested, the rebels would have destroyed Banks' army. Um, but General Kirby Smith later remarked that, quote, had Banks followed up his success vigorously, he would have met but feeble opposition to his advance on Shreveport, end quote. In other words, Richard Taylor thinks that if he had only received a few more men, he could have effectively destroyed the Union Army of the Gulf. And at the same time, Kirby Smith is suggesting that General Banks would have captured Shreveport with relative ease had he simply continued the campaign after Pleasant Hill. Now, given Richard Taylor's and Kirby Smith's uh, deep dislike for one another, you can't help but suspect that their conflicting opinions were at least partly influenced by a desire to make the other look bad. Instead of pursuing Banks, Taylor assigned a few thousand rebel cavalrymen under General Tom Green to march northeast from Pleasant Hill toward Blair's Landing, a bending stretch of the Red River where the rebel cavaliers could at least harass and hopefully stop Porter's gunboats as they continued their trip toward Shreveport. Remember, the Union Army and Navy separated a few days before Mansfield and Pleasant Hill. On April 15th, Kirby Smith responded to the news of Banks' complete withdrawal and abandonment of the Union campaign against Shreveport by reassigning three divisions of Taylor's infantry to Arkansas to assist in defending against Union General Frederick Steele's movement against Shreveport from the north. Kirby Smith would personally lead the three divisions marching north to confront General Steele. Left with only 5,000 men, not enough to seek a full battle against the withdrawing Federals, Richard Taylor was again furious with Kirby Smith. All right, we're going to go ahead and break here for now. I wanted to get this part two released, and then a part three will follow uh, within the next week or so, once the last of the editing is complete. The conclusion in part three should be another uh, hour or so, where we'll get into the somewhat unusual battle of Blair's Landing, the Camden Expedition in Arkansas, and what proved to be the highlight of the campaign on the Union side, an impressive work of improvised river engineering that has come to be known as Bailey's Dam. Uh, where an engineer from Wisconsin named Joseph Bailey effectively saved Admiral Porter's freshwater flotilla with an ingenious project to raise the water high enough to let the ironclads get back to the Mississippi. Before we break, though, there is one further uh, topical item that I wanted to mention. And when I say topical, I mean it relates to current events. If you've been paying attention to the Washington knuckleheads, which... 
you know, all things uh, considered, I, I generally wouldn't recommend. Uh, but if you have been, you've probably heard that the House of Representatives just selected a new Speaker of the House after a historic number of unsuccessful votes. Uh, for context, the uh, rule is that a new Speaker needs a majority vote. So not just the, um, the knucklehead with the most votes, but uh, at least 51%. In this case, it took 15 votes before they settled on the new speaker, selecting Calvin McCarthy, a congressman from California. Okay, so the reason that this podcast cares about uh, all that is that the 15 ballots that, that they needed to pick the Speaker of the House in 2023 was the most since before the Civil War. Now, unsurprisingly, the uh, the 1850s saw some epically long fights over the speaker position. The uh, most recent that um, took longer than in 2023 was in 1859, and that one required 44 ballots. But the longest ever in U.S. history occurred in 1855, so uh, after the um, 1854 elections. And in that instance, the speaker election was drawn out for two months and required a whopping 133 ballots. And after all that time, and after all the horse trading and uh, wheeling and dealing, um, including in the end a special resolution that allowed the Speaker to be selected by a plurality uh, rather than a uh, majority, uh, after all that, the 1855-1856 Congress ultimately chose a young, politically savvy representative from Massachusetts who was anti-slavery but considered a moderate. And if you haven't already guessed, that representative chosen as the Speaker of the House after the most drawn-out selection process in American history was none other than future Union General Nathaniel Prentice Banks. In Banks' case, the Speaker's role would uh, prove to be the peak of his political career, and the animosity that the wing of the party called the uh, Radical Republicans... Um, felt toward Banks, uh, was going to follow him for years to come. Uh, they dogged him during the war, and after the war, they opposed his campaign to get back into Congress. Though uh, Banks did end up winning, um, winning back his seat in Congress with the support of Massachusetts voters, if not the official support of the Republican Party. And only time will tell um, whether, uh, after the most recent contentious speaker election, uh, whether Kelvin McCartney's career uh, follows a similar trajectory. All right, that's the uh, topical issue that I wanted to mention. Um, it's always cool when something the show is uh, going into has a, a connection to what's, uh, you know, what's currently in the news. Thank you all for listening, and look for part three of the Red River Campaign series in the near future. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.